Hey, this is Evan Phillips from Anchorage, Alaska, and you're listening to The Fern Line. It's great to be back with you today for a special bonus episode of The Fern Line. A lot of you know that we are currently in between seasons one and two, but because of the generous support from my Patreon backers, I've been able to carve out more time to get this episode out to you today. I've been working on this episode for over a year now, and I've put a lot of thought, care, and creativity into making it special. So I hope you enjoy it. Before we get into the goods today, I want to remind folks that there's a few ways you can really help me out. The first is to leave a review on iTunes or from within your favorite podcast app. Reviews are a great way to let potential listeners know that the podcast is a high quality and entertaining listening experience. Another way you can help out is by telling someone directly. Word of mouth is the best way to get information out there, and it helps create the grassroots vibe I'm going for. So make sure you tell a friend. And finally, if you're one of those people that finds yourself anxiously awaiting Fernline episodes, or if the podcast somehow adds value to your life, you might consider becoming a Patreon backer. Patreon is a membership platform that gives listeners the opportunity to directly support the podcast each month. Patreon backers get access to exclusive content, including the Patreon-only podcast, Beyond the Fern Line, plus merchandise, original music I produce, as well as other podcast-related beta. But more than anything, when you become a backer on Patreon, you're supporting this podcast organically and from the ground up. Today's episode is a direct result of the support I get on Patreon, and I really couldn't do it without your help. To find out how to become a patron of The Fern Line, you can go to thefernline.com and click Support The Fern Line. All right, so with that, it's time to grab your favorite beverage and get cozy on your couch, camp chair, or your five-star portal edge bivy on the side of a remote backcountry wall and settle in for this episode of The Fern Line. On a cold winter day in 1999, I found myself wedged in a sandy chimney, fully gripped and trembling, 500 feet off the deck. Me and my partner Scott were attempting to climb the Thunderbird Wall, 
a grade six backcountry behemoth in Zion National Park's Kolab Canyon. The face, which is among the highest sandstone walls in the world, had only been climbed twice since Jeff Lowe and Cactus Brian made the first attempt in 1971. Scott had been to Zion once before. I had never stood in a pair of aders. In hindsight, I can only blame the ignorance of youth for leading me to believe I had any business being on the Thunderbird Wall. A month before in Alaska, my friend Tim Chowzik and I pooled our money, a combined total of $500, and headed down the Alcan Highway in his beat-up brown Toyota pickup truck. Our goal was to make it 3,500 miles to Red Rocks, Nevada, where we would climb long free routes and hopefully stretch our pennies to last a few months. Oddly, we never discussed how we'd make it back to Alaska. At the time, we simply said to each other, we'll just figure it out along the way. And we did. After convincing customs to let us pass the border, we took turns driving through Yukon territory in 40 below temperatures, never sleeping or turning the truck off for fear it might not start again. One morning on the Cassiar Highway, we slid into the ditch after narrowly missing a covey of spruce grouse on the road. A few hours later, our headlights mysteriously went out. It was too cold to attempt a repair, so we continued our nervous vigil, driving through the night with our emergency lights flashing. A few sleepless days later, and racing the fading daylight, we made it to the outskirts of Portland, Oregon. Just when we thought it was in the bag, a police officer pulled us over for driving without headlights. Heads bowed, we pleaded our case to the cop, and after promising we'd get the lights fixed, she chuckled, shook her head, and let us off with a loose warning. But in typical dirtbag fashion, we did not repair the headlights. This train is bound for home, castles made of stone, pass me like a grayscale time zone. I see the country in the sun. Twin cities After recuperating in Portland for a couple days, we stopped at Smith Rock, where we shredded our fingertips on volcanic tuff and sharp basalt. A few days later, we continued meandering south, and things were going smoothly, until we got pulled over again. This time, it was a California highway patrolman who cited us for driving without a passenger side mirror. Officer Poindexter, whose name is forever embedded in my memory, proceeded to shake us down one by one before asking if he could search the truck with his very large German Shepherd. You guys got any assault rifles in here? He asked. Thinking he was joking, Tim and I snickered, which we instantly realized was a big mistake. You think I'm joking, He barked. Get your hands on the hood of the truck. Now! Instantly, I had visions of deliverance as I looked around and realized we were in the middle of nowhere. Needless to say, we complied and put our hands on the hood of the truck. For the next five minutes, Officer Poindexter berated us under his breath as he searched in vain for the drugs and assault rifles. 
When he inevitably came up empty-handed, he nonchalantly started joking around with us like nothing had happened. But this time, Tim and I weren't laughing. You boys have a good day and keep yourselves out of trouble, he said. As he pulled away, Tim and I looked at each other, shell-shocked by what had just occurred. Shaken, we got back in the truck and nervously continued on. But as the landscape changed from mountains to rivers and finally to Joshua trees, our moods became euphoric. Nothing can stop us now, we proclaimed to each other. And after a final 12-hour blitz, we arrived at the old Red Rocks campground in the black of night, emergency light flashing yet again. As luck would have it, there was just one campsite left, and we quickly backed into it. That evening, we were kept awake until the wee hours of dawn by our neighbors, a ragtag crew of obnoxious and disheveled-looking heathens. The next morning, we observed the remnants of their prior evening's pillage, empty cans of natty ice strewn about, open jars of peanut butter with beans and salsa spilling off the picnic table, misshapen tents and half-burned pallets scattered in all directions. Tim and I exchanged a quick glance, then promptly packed our gear and moved in with them to save what little money we had left. Coming up over Arizona sand, fifth gear racing across this land. See your face on the back of your hand. Looks like the sky's gonna fall. Over the next few days, Tim and I settled into a disciplined but free-spirited routine. We rose early every morning so as not to waste daylight, and we climbed until dark, always staggering back to camp exhausted. Evenings were spent laughing and telling stories around the campfire with our new friends. Shiloh was a good-natured Canadian who subsisted on acrid Uban coffee and rattly 510 hand jams. Troy was a witty Australian, the life of the party, who somehow managed to drink everyone's beer without ever having to pay for any of it. Scott was a bespectacled steeplejack from New York, working half the year stacking coin while spending the other half dirtbagging around the U.S. We all became instant friends and jokingly christened our campsite Groveler's Gulch. Another week passed, and Tim and I continued our regimen of climbing long, moderate free routes like Frogland, Refried Brains, and Black Orpheus. Our campmates preferred to sleep in and climb shorter but stouter test pieces like Out of Control, 
Nightcrawler, and The Fox. Our Red Rock stint culminated with a group outing up Epinephrine, which we completed in a casual 12-hour round trip. Later that night, Scott mentioned he wanted to head to Zion the following day. Tim and I quickly signed on as we had never aid climbed before. We also knew that if you wanted to be a true hard man, you had to be competent at the Canadian Rocky standard of 5-9-A-2. So with that, we continued talking and laughing around the campfire, enjoying each other's company, until one by one, each person staggered off to their sleeping bags. The next morning, Shiloh headed back to Canada, and Troy hopped in the back of Tim's truck as we followed Scott towards Zion. Of course Scott had the hookup on some free camping outside of the park, so we nestled in that night next to the bubbling Virgin River. It's hard to describe the feeling of seeing the soaring red walls of Zion for the first time. Having come from the mountains of Alaska, I was used to big terrain, but this was different. The desert was a land of extremes, the opposite of the glaciers and ice faces that surrounded me in Anchorage. But what I saw in each environment was an equal opportunity for adventure. I was determined to find a full value experience in Zion. The next morning, Scott and I headed to the ranger station to do a little bit of research. My only requirement was that we do a more obscure climb off the beaten path, something more akin to the Alaskan adventures I was used to. Ten minutes later, Scott approached me, waving a copy of a hand-drawn topo. Dude, there's a backcountry wall in Kolob Canyon called Thunderbird Wall. I think it's only been climbed once or twice. One by one, my finger traced the pitches on the topo. Lots of 5, 9, and A2, which at first glance seemed reasonable. As I look more closely, though, there was a roof a third of the way up the face that was said to be A3+. You didn't have to be a rocket scientist to know that this would be the crux, and most likely, the point of no return on the route. That afternoon, we drove to the north entrance of the park to do a recon of the wall. As we weaved our way up the steep road into Kolob Canyon, the views were spectacular as gold and red towers, speckled with lush pine trees, rose in all directions. All the Finally, we crested the last turn and were astonished at the immensity of the north face of Timbertop Mesa. The Thunderbird Wall took the most direct line, nearly 2,000 feet in length, to the apex of the wall. As we giddily scoped the face with binoculars, Scott and I wordlessly exchanged a glance. We didn't have to say anything to know that we would try and climb it. 
A few days later, Scott and I, accompanied by Tim and Troy, slogged under heavy loads to the base of the Thunderbird Wall. That afternoon, we fixed the first pitch, which started with a really sketchy snow traverse, followed by an A2 seam to a ledge. After an idyllic forest bivy, we bid Tim and Troy farewell as they headed for more sane objectives. Scott and I then began our climb in earnest. From the get-go, we moved ridiculously slow, not just because we were terrible aid climbers, but also because the cracks were often filled with thorny bushes that constantly tangled our slings and gear. In the afternoon, I did my first ever aid lead, linking a string of reachy drilled angles, most likely installed by Ron Olevsky on the first ascent. That night, we set up the portal edge at the top of pitch two. A few hundred feet above, the A3 plus roof loomed ominously. The next morning, we woke to chilly conditions and observed icicles dripping from nearby overhangs. Scott continued up the A2 crack system, lassoing bushes for protection and wailing pitons every chance he could get. Although we probably could have done the route clean, we'd come stocked with an arsenal of iron, including a beloved three-inch bong piton I'd scored at a garage sale. Near the top of the pitch, Scott let out a maniacal howl as he welded the bong to the hilt. In hindsight, we definitely weren't setting standards for ethics on the Thunderbird wall. After fixing another pitch, we retreated back to the portal edge in the fading daylight. As we brewed drinks and gorged ourselves on canned beans, I avoided looking up at the A3 roof, still a rope length above our high point. But if either of us had doubts that night, we kept them to ourselves as the ink-black sky burst with stars and the massive walls around us illuminated under soft moonlight. It's a night that is forever etched in my memory. The next morning dawned frosty as we disassembled the portal edge, jugged the fix lines, and started hauling the bag. 
An hour later, I donned my rock shoes and started groveling up a sandy chimney, inching closer to the inevitable specter of the roof. Near the top of the chimney, I slotted a number six Camelot, my only protection for 30 feet, into a crumbling, flared crack. A few moves later, I was near the top of the chimney, which by then had constricted into an awkward off-width. Watch me, I said to Scott. As I peered over the lip, I was stopped dead in my tracks. The roof looked exactly the way I'd imagined an A3-plus roof should look. Overhanging, terribly exposed, and pretty much horrifying. At that moment, I was totally out of my league 500 feet up the Thunderbird wall, and I knew it. Above me, there was a series of blank, lichen-covered moves before it looked like the crack would take any protection. If that wasn't enough, the cam I'd placed, now below my feet, was slowly walking its way out of the crumbling, flared-off width. I'd come a long way to be in this position, but in that instant, I knew it wasn't worth it. A fall would have been deadly serious, and I didn't have the confidence to make the move. I took a deep breath, looked up at the roof one more time, and started down climbing. Sometimes it's hard to understand the lesson in the moment, and that was certainly the case on the Thunderbird wall. Although we knew we made the right decision in retreating, we both felt like we failed. So for a consolation prize, Scott, Tim, and I climbed Lunar Ecstasy, a nine-pitch overhanging aid line on the left side of Moonlight Buttress. The climbing was challenging and tedious, but we were in our element, laughing and making jokes the whole time. I even got to lead the crux pitch, which never would have been possible without the experience I'd gained on the Thunderbird wall just a few days prior. Worn out strength, useless friends, useless things. A week later, Tim and I said goodbye to our friends. Scott would continue groveling and dumpster diving his way back across the states to his steeplejack job. Somewhere along the line, we heard Troy ended up in Yosemite, hanging out with Chongo Chuck and selling weed to tourists. My good fortune continued in April when I received a tax return of $400, just enough to get a ticket back to Alaska. But I still had three weeks to go before my Denali guiding season would start. So me and my best friend Carl did a 70-mile traverse up the Matanuska Glacier, making the first ascent of a mile-high knife-edge ridge in the process. But that's another story. It's now almost been 20 years since my attempt on the Thunderbird wall. And even though Scott and I only made it a laughable five pitches up the route, it still remains one of the most unique and cherished experiences of my climbing career. Maybe it was my newfound connection to the desert, a kinship I still feel to this day. Or perhaps it was the fact that it was my first aid climb, on a backcountry grade six no less, that imprinted that event on my life. But when I really stop and think about it, it wasn't just the climb on the Thunderbird wall that was special. We were young, healthy, and the only thing that mattered was living in the moment. 
We were part of a tribe that was bigger than ourselves. We didn't need money or nine to five jobs or a city life security to make us happy. If anything, we wanted the opposite. We liked climbing because as Jack Tackle says, it was anarchy, there were no rules. We chose to put ourselves in situations that made us scared because it made our lives richer and it bonded us. We were having fun. But if you really want to simplify it and strip away all the bullshit, we did it for the adventure. After all, that's what the essence of climbing has always been about. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Whether you're a grizzled Yosemite wall rat or a neophyte gym climber that's looking to expand your horizons to the great outdoors, I hope you found some inspiration and enjoyment in today's episode. Don't forget to leave a review on iTunes or within your favorite podcast app. And remember, if this podcast adds value to your life, please consider supporting my efforts each month on Patreon. If you want to get in touch, you can email me directly at thefernline at gmail.com. And finally, if you enjoy the tunes you hear on The Fernline, you can check out more of my music on iTunes, Spotify, Bandcamp, and evanphillips.net. Until next time, I'm Evan Phillips, and this is The Fernline. Reflection of the bitterness from your